Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So my, my training was in the Vipassana tradition originally. And in that tradition, if you feel like something is getting uncomfortable, you just move around, and it's perfectly acceptable. And then after that, I trained in the Zen tradition. And in the Zen tradition, 
don't you dare move, <laughs> or it'll, it'll be really bad. Yeah. 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 So I like to take a middle path. Okay? So if you find that once in a while you're sitting and then maybe a foot goes numb or something, just stay with it. It's okay. And yogis, this is a hell realm. Because yoga practitioners are addicted to sensations. So when they feel something, and this is the big difference between asana and meditation practice, they feel something and think, oh, I better go breathe into it, open it up, explore it, investigate it. When you sit, that's not what you do. When you sit, when sensations arise, you just start feeling them. And you watch that there's actually quite a big gap between what you feel and what you think you need to do. And in meditation practice, we really aim for that gap. Okay? Now, having said that, if every time you sit, you get exactly the same pain, or your, your leg falls asleep, if, you, if your legs fall asleep every time you sit, you'll get nerve damage. Okay? So, especially if they fall asleep within the first 10 minutes. So then we have to work with the posture, because there's no need for that. Um, so uh, you have to check to make sure your sitting bones are glued to the cushion, that you're not pressing your hamstrings into the cushion. Uh, sometimes people have a habit, if one foot's cold, to just kind of tuck it in here. Mm -hmm. um, that'll put the bottom leg to sleep because it's too much pressure. Um, if your knee joints don't close perfectly, it could twist your knee a little bit. So you have to make sure that your shin bones are on the floor. Uh, if they're not, or one's a little higher, you might need to put something under your knee. Um, but there are so many people in this room uh, who can help you. Uh, so look at somebody who seems like they're doing okay, and ask them for some advice. Because uh, there's some very skilled people here who can help you learn how to sit properly. But it's good to ask questions. Okay? So, whatever posture you find, it's never going to be perfect. Different sensations will always show up. I had a student once on retreat who was a dancer, and she sat, and it was just so hard on her joints. On her, her knees and her ankles were just so sore all the time. And it was very peculiar to me, because she knows her body very well. And she knows how to take care and how to shift. So I said to her, which I, I could say to you also, like during the set, if you find, oh, it's just really uncomfortable, bow, make a change, do it really quickly, and then just sit again. And just be still. But if you're like always moving around, <laughs> scratching, <laughs> Like that's usually the first thing you work with in meditation practice is just itchy things like yeah. that. <laughs> from nowhere. Yeah. Um, so so that's what she did in the retreat, and it just it was so bad for her. She had such a hard time, and then her shin bones were hurting, like the actual bones were hurting. Mm -hmm. So then I said, uh, so we were in an interview, so I said, straighten your legs, and then I put my hands on her shin bones. And then she just started pouring tears. And then she remembered when she was small, she used to get hit. And when she got hit, it was she would go like this. 
And so she would always get hit here. So her body was remembering all of this. So sometimes uh, we have different pains that arise, and it doesn't have anything to do with your posture. It has to do with the fact that you're getting quiet. And when you're getting quiet, even though our idealistic mind says, I'm going to get so peaceful. <laughs> um, usually that's followed by, it's just like relationships. When your relationship gets really <coughs> strong and steady, you're ready for something new. I don't mean another relationship. <laughs> usually in that space where you feel safe and you feel held and you feel vulnerable, then something from the deep will come up that needs healing. We all know this. How many people go on vacation and they finally relax and then they get sick? Because their body goes, oh, okay, it's safe now. Or they start having nightmares. So same thing with sitting. You sit and as you get more and more stable, a new patterns come up from the mythic realms that really need attention. So let's just stay open to that. And let's not be so idealistic about states of peace. Because they'll come and they'll go. Yeah. Can you say something about the difference between experiencing pain in sitting, which I totally relate to that, and then yeah. experiencing pain in posture practice? Yeah. Do you, do you handle pain in posture practice in exactly the same way, or are there different um, kinds of It pain? depends what kind of pain. So, in yoga asana, my theory is that you should never have pain in your joints. Never. Ever, ever, ever. No. Ever, 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 ever. Yeah. It's not worth it. Because usually you don't injure your joints in yoga in one movement. You injure them over time. So the joints should always be warm and mobile. And um, that's why I'm a bit obsessed with alignment. Because it'll carry you through the practice for a long period of time. And nowadays my interest is also strength around joints. Um, because the more flexible you get in practice, the more you have to take time to strengthen. Uh, so that can all be held together. Yeah. So um, we're constantly negotiating this dialogue. Uh, strong sensations in the muscles, okay. Fine, mm -hmm. no problem. But ripping sounds? So how do you see the relation between the posture practice and the sitting? Yeah. So you've mentioned a few things that makes it more difficult to sit. Mm -hmm. But I guess, since you still teach the posture practice, yeah. that it's also supporting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel that they should be kept as totally separate limbs, which is not a popular viewpoint. But I find that when you do sitting meditation practice, it teaches you how to work with your mind in a way that can be directly applied to the asana practice. 
You learn equanimity, you learn patience, you learn inquiry, you learn how to trust your own wisdom. Um, but sitting meditation is not the same as asana practice. And people who say it's exactly the same psychologically, I think, don't sit. <laughs> um, when you sit, there are states of mind you can look at in that stillness that in my experience you don't look at when there's movement or a lot of sensations. So I like to keep them as separate limbs. Mm -hmm. That's what I recommend. So uh, I think everybody should have a daily sitting practice with no holidays. But not necessarily a daily asana practice. I think it depends on your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Some people may practice six days a week. Some people may practice five days a week. Some people may practice three days a week. But the most important thing is the daily sitting practice. Personally, I feel that way. Mm -hmm. And then after the sitting practice, starting to make the connection between the sitting and the ethics. And then um, the asana practice supports all of that. But um, that's just the way I practice. So that's what I teach. I'm asking because the more I sit, the less important I find the uh, asana practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a spectrum, right? And there's sometimes we just go all the way over, like, oh, I just love sitting so much, I'm never going to do a headstand ever again. Like, what's the point? <laughs> but actually, keep going, because there's more to explore there. The mind loves to trick us into, oh, I found the thing now. Yeah. Like, why, would, why do I ever have to do Navasana? I mean, who made that up? <laughs> but actually, whatever it is that's propelling you to think that is why you need to be practicing. <laughs> So from sitting, there's kind of spilling over into asana, but you don't find that there's a spilling over coming the other way? There's a spill, there is a spilling over because there's an awareness of the posture. Um, I think sometimes for some people as sitting practice deepens, a lot of different energetic shifts happen and changes in the nervous system that asana practice seems to really stabilize. So I do think there's a crossover that goes both ways. Yes. I don't think you have talked about open eyes or closed eyes during meditation. I haven't, no. Because a few years ago you were really into open eyes. Yeah, I'm really into open eyes. <laughs> yes. and, but it also connects to Anna's question about moving around, because when you're meditating with your eyes open, you see all the things going on, but I feel that maybe some of the people moving are not, have, they are having their eyes closed, so they don't maybe notice how it affects that they're small stretching legs or right. moving around, how yeah. it affects those that are sitting with right. eyes open. Yeah. And that we are trying to hold the full space, so we should actually try to be really still, mm -hmm. eyes open or closed, yeah. because we're holding the space for the others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I like to sit with what's called drishti, which means gazing. So that means your eyes are not open, and they're not closed, they're right in the middle. So in drishti, your gaze is set up so that the image, the, the field that you're looking at, is coming towards the eyes, rather than the eyes going after the image. Okay, so you can, we can all try this. 
So if you just pick a point on the floor and you look at just pick any point, and you really stare at it, kind of like the way people stare at you in a bar. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, sorry. We wish. Um, so you'll notice right away your breathing stops, and your lower jaw just gets stiff. Yeah, can everybody feel that? It just happens right away. It's like your breathing gets so, yeah, your suboccipitals get uptight. Okay, so that is staring or appropriation, where there's a subject and an object. In gazing, instead, and we're going to try this now, you let the eyes rest on a point, but you let the image come towards your eyes. So instead of your eyes going to the image, the image comes to your eyes. And the first thing you'll notice is your peripheral vision increases, not decreases. And the paradox here is that the more still the eyes are, the wider your peripheral vision gets. And you can breathe. And then go back to staring again. Do you see the difference? Can you feel the difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when your eyelids are closed, it's very hard for your eyes to be still. Like when you watch people when they're sleeping. If they have a dream and a truck is going by, their eyes watch the truck and move along. So when you watch people in meditation practice whose eyes are closed, the eyes tend to be moving around quite a lot. It takes a long time to get your eyes to be still, although there are tricks. Um, but that's not the most important. The most important part of keeping the eyes open is that you don't go anywhere. Okay? So at the end of the sitting meditation, Heidi or Irene rings the bell. And if your eyes are closed, you open them. <laughs> and then you're coming back again. Okay? Where are you coming back from? So the tendency is to then have a feeling of an inside and an outside. And we're trying to push through that a little bit. So I like to sit with my eyes half open, except sometimes when I'm teaching and there's a lot of people. Then sometimes I'll close my eyes. Um, and then the bell rings, and we're here. And we didn't go anywhere. We're right here. And this makes a stronger connection between the internal life of meditation practice and our daily life. And then it's really great to try this when you're walking down the street. So you walk down the street and you don't pick anything. You just receive whatever you're looking at. right? Because you know how sometimes we have like, oh, there's a certain body type I like to look at, or a certain age group I like to look at, or a certain gender I like to look at, right? You don't even realize you do this. But instead, you just walk down the road, and you just, everything's equal. And then you start to notice things that you wouldn't have noticed before. So you're not compartmentalizing. You see? It's very similar to what we do when we sit. And most people who've learned, like I did, with your eyes closed, hate sitting with your eyes open. It's like a torture for the person. There's a great interview I read in Namarupa magazine with Batabi Joyce, 
where he says that Krishnamacharya told him whenever he meditated, he had to sit with his eyes open, and that it just made him cry. So he never did it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm the only person who thinks that's funny. <laughs> so it's really important that your eyes are receptive. So uh, maybe we can all try this when we're sitting. But no, I haven't talked about it so much uh, this year. At the beginning, it's not always the most important thing. The most important thing is that the room is really settling. And then we can start to finish things. Yeah. It was just um, the walking meditation is very new to me. I haven't tried that before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had that experience that when when the bell goes on and we start to walk, it was like coming back to this room and then I find it very hard to you know, to just walk around and, and being focused or at ease or, and, and when I sit yeah. down again, it's like I have to still my mind over again. So I find yeah. it really confusing and I'm just thinking maybe the open eye thing would connect the three. It could. In a, in yeah. a little bit. Walking meditation is very confusing. Because it's so useless. (laughs) It's so unproductive. It has no meaning. And the mind is trying to figure out constantly, what does this mean? Am I getting somewhere? Because when do we ever walk with nowhere to go? So, um, one of the first things about walking meditation is you want to have a balanced awareness between the breathing and the feet. So really feeling all the bones in the foot, which really messes with the mind if you're a type A personality. Do you have those in Copenhagen? Do you know what a type A personality is? Don't worry about it. (laughs) If you're always needing to, I call it in order to mind. It's the mind that's always doing this in order to get that. Okay, and it's very frustrating for that mind. And you'll see those people are like going really close to the person in front of them. <laughs> you know, thinking, should I pass them? <laughs> um, may, maybe for beginners we should have a passing lane. <laughs> for the passive-aggressive people. <laughs> Breathing down your neck. <laughs> Breathing down your neck. <laughs> We should have a bell for passing. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing. So, so to have this balance between being in your own experience and also being aware of the whole room walking. And I think I said this on the first day. So that's why I like to really keep this peripheral vision. So... The neat thing that can happen in walking meditation, and maybe some of you have felt this, is you're walking, and then eventually you just forget about yourself. And you feel part of the whole room walking. That's a really nice thing. So just be aware of the whole room walking together, self-organizing. I like to walk slow enough that I don't move the air around me. So I like to meditate on that when I'm walking. I try to walk in a way where I'm not going to move the air. And just to really slow everything down. Mm -hmm. Um, 
at Center of Gravity on our retreats, I know some of you have done this with me, we do uh, seven minutes of walking slow, and then five minutes of walking fast. And then we sit down. Um, so there's many different ways we can do it. But today I just want to do slow walking so that we really just, we're just settling and settling and settling. One time, we do a retreat on New Year's. Uh, out in the country in the snow. And... Um, at a beautiful retreat center every year. And, uh, has anyone here been on that retreat? I don't think so. And um, there's a little house nearby where Karina and I stay, which is the, the farmhouse of the people who own the retreat center. And uh, they have a little sun. And uh, so we go do the walking meditation outside in the snow, under the moon. It's so beautiful. Especially when it stops snowing and there's the moon and the stars and... Just and, and, and do you know what it's like when the moon is bright mm-hmm. and it, there's snow on the ground? It's really bright. And then we just do slow walking outside. And um, one time the kid who was in the farmhouse looked out the window <laughs> and saw all of these adults walking slowly in the forest. He turned around white and said, Mama, zombies! <laughs> Any other questions before we keep going? I have one also about does does this mean something like energetically, this uh, or symbolically, or or this? Yeah, this this mudra is uh, a mudra for gathering energy. So it's the end of this movement. So that's what you want to feel. So that when, when you bring your hands together, there's a sense of just gathering the prana and then holding it. <coughs> and, you know, maybe some schools have invented other meanings, but I don't know what they and, and what's the name of the mudra? Shusho. Shusho mudra. Yeah. This is called Gasho. Gasho. Yeah. Gasho, Shusho. Yeah. You also said there was a difference between where you put your elbows, high or low? Well, this is sort of the lazy version. So it's just <laughs> <laughs> that's what it means? Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, there's different versions of it. This really has a lot more energy in it. Um, in a monastery, the higher up you are in rank, the higher you lift your elbows. Because it makes your robes do different things. <laughs> so it doesn't really it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, it does. Okay. This is more energetic. Less, okay. This is a little like <laughs> <laughs> It's a funny thing, you know, like, 
when I start, this is a tangent from your question. When I um, started practicing, I had such an aversion to ritual and uh, form. Um, like I said the other day, you know, I grew up Jewish, and in the Jewish tradition, you don't bow. It's like sacrilegious to bow. Um, we have a big altar in our house, and even when my mom comes over, she thinks it's so weird. Yeah. Um, she just pretends it's not there. <laughs> Grandmothers are very good at that. Um, so, so to me, what I loved about silent retreat in the Vipassana tradition is that there's no ritual. And if there is, it's very minimal. And uh, this was quite a relief for me, because I thought, oh, it's just all about sitting. And then, you know, as I got more interested in yoga and chanting, whenever I chanted, I would never chant anything unless I knew its meaning. Because I thought, I'm not going to chant unless I know exactly what it means. Because there's certain chants where I really don't like what it means. Like, I never chant the closing chant, the Ashtanga closing chant, because I, I don't really love what it means. But we can talk about that later. Um, so, my tune has changed because one of the things about religious practice is that it's designed to stretch you out of the way that you imagine things. And I think that the role of imagination in our spiritual practice is so important. And so I think sometimes it's good to be in ritual where the mind that understands everything that's happening doesn't understand. And so that there's a certain element of being taken out of your comfort zone where that's not the mind state that you're using to enter the ritual in. So like bowing, we could talk about all the traditions and there are actually many theories about how your hands are. I think there's seven different positions of the fingers and bowing. Okay. But also, it's just good to feel the bow and not necessarily uh, completely understand what you're doing. And um, as the years go on, I appreciate that about these practices more and more and more. Is uh, the way our imagination gets stretched. Because really, even though people don't articulate it this way, one of the things that meditative practice is doing is it's teaching you how to use your imagination in new ways. Because when you're sad and melancholy and every problem in the world is right in your face, one of the problems with that is it's a failure of your imagination that you don't have a way to frame what you're experiencing in a bigger and more spacious way. I mean, in a way, the definition of neurosis is just when there is a not present that you have no space around. It's right here. And part of meditation practice is pulling it over here so that you can look at it. But really, I think one of the things that it's doing is actually opening up your imagination so that you can experience what you're experiencing from a, in a much, with a much larger background. You see? 
So meditation is a freedom for your imagination to function in a more creative and spacious way, even though usually we don't think about it in that, in that kind of sense. And that's where ritual comes in, which is ritual pushes your imagination so that you can experience your body and your movements and your intentions and vows in a different way. Um, so those of us who are skeptics or have uh, cultural appropriation radar that's very sensitive, um, also just be aware that there might be something in the form that's trying to show you something. Um, just like, does anybody ever get it when they read a text and there's something they don't, like that they just don't really understand, so they keep skipping it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then sometimes they think, oh, what is it I don't want to know in there? Mm -hmm. Right? And it's the same thing with, with uh, these forms. So every year I come, if I'm ever invited back, we'll just keep adding more and more form. Now that you know that. I'm done. <laughs> but do you think falling asleep is also can be a neurotic behavior? That you kind of don't want to deal with things yeah. and you, so you slumber away? Yeah. yeah. It's the first paragraph of the Yoga Sutra. Sleep. Oh, right. It's one of the five yeah. 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 So yeah. compulsive falling asleep. Sort of a yeah. Compulsive <coughs> yeah. While sitting meditation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's funny how somebody can fall asleep in that posture. It, it goes really, yeah, I, I have this. I heard the Dalai Lama say something really interesting about sleeping, which is that one of the reasons why meditators fall asleep is because they're entering a state of mind where they don't recognize themselves. Where they don't want to be, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not that they don't want to be, but they just don't recognize how they function. So, for example, like during the day, we're always like, awake? <laughs> and if we get a little tired, we have sweet treats. <laughs> right? Yeah, okay. But in meditation, those mind states are going to come in, and you don't turn to sweet treats, so we just fall asleep. But actually, there's a whole spectrum in there that you can check out, mm -hmm. but we don't recognize ourselves there. So the brain is programmed to fall asleep. So it's like we're retraining to be able to stay there in those those moments. Yeah, so if you're falling asleep, there are some tricks you can try. Um, the first one is you focus more on your inhalation than your exhalation. Mm -hmm. Another trick you can try is you take your tongue and you prick it into the roof of your mouth quite strong while you're inhaling for one minute. And you hold it there for a whole minute. Mm -hmm. And it just lifts the spine and lifts the prana up. Maybe some of you need to do it right now. <laughs> Um, another, uh, and I, this is all from experience, because I've done lots of retreats where you sit through the night. And if you've ever not hallucinated, <laughs> come on one of those retreats. <laughs> um, so, I used to do a retreat where every December the 8th, you sit for 24 hours. No sleep. No sleeping. 24 <laughs> yeah. hours? Yeah. It's amazing. 24 hours, how, how do you do how do you do it? Well, oh, you just do sitting, walking, do sitting, walking, sitting, oh, walking, okay. eat. Okay. Sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. Eat. <laughs> sit, walk, sit, walk. Go to the but bathroom. people do fall asleep, I'm sure. They, I mean, if, 
Yeah, yeah, you can fall asleep, but you're not supposed to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure hours went by. Which is like, <laughs> what am I doing? Um, so, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, I found that one of the... That we're not covering anything. Like that, but one of the best ways I found of working with sleepiness is with language. So, when sleepiness arises, the trick is to... Notice sleepiness. So you say, oh, sleepiness. Okay? But if sleepiness is present, and you say, I'm sleepy, it's over. Okay? So the key is, and this is called nirodaha, mm-hmm. is not identifying with the chitta So you're respecting that it's there, you're noting it, but you're not saying, I I'm sleepy. Mm-hmm. Just there is sleepiness, or here is sleepiness. Body is sleepiness. But as soon as you say, and this might seem, not seem like a big deal, but when you try it meditating, it's really interesting. Bless you. You're each taking turns. <laughs> Never mind bowing. These two will just sneeze. <laughs> Bless you. Bless you. <laughs> Thank you. Bless you. <laughs> Um, just being able to notice sleepiness without the identification, mm-hmm. which is the clinging. The because once you're saying to yourself, I'm sleepy, it's over. Mm-hmm. You're done. You can't get out of that. So you're trying to just get the right distance, the right proximity from sleep mm-hmm. to be able to bring your awareness to it without misidentifying it. So, these are little tricks. Little tricks you can try. If you find that every single time you sit, you're sleepy, then you need to look at your diet, nutrition, how much time you're getting outside, exercise, how much sleep you get. Yeah, like my, my friend Matthew, he has this rule, no media after sunset. No media. No media after sunset. No screens. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's most of the day if you live in COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's like October. Good <laughs> rule. <laughs> but uh, am I correct in you, you you tend to meditate, and you say like you should get up and meditate. That's a great time to meditate, right? Like when you first so f- so for me, partly because of my lifestyle and my family best time for me to meditate is I just roll out of bed and I just sit. <coughs> That's, That's my favorite perfect time. time. Mm. And you know, there's something to the fact that the monasteries all over the world Do meditate before the birds are up. What is the explanation for that? that well, I don't know if we need to explain. I mean, I think we just know that when we get out of bed in the morning, the mind the is clearer. Okay. And in the <coughs> evening, your mind is a mess. And the opposite with the body. In the morning, the body is very stiff, mind is clear. Mm-hmm. In the afternoon, mind is a mess. Body's body is very flexible. Yeah. yeah. So I like to practice <coughs> asana when I can in the afternoon, and I like doing my sitting in the morning, which works with my kids' schedules. Yeah. Um. 
even though I meditate in the mornings, I still have a lot of thoughts. So I've started to do pranayama first, mm -hmm. and then meditation, mm -hmm. and that should be helpful. Great. I don't know why. That's fine. It's fine. Yep. If you don't have a pranayama practice, chanting is good too. Or you said. Any other questions? Or we continue to avoid relationship? <laughs> okay. I, I got this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, doing pranayama before sitting. Uh, I guess you can do both um, uplifting, energizing pranayama uh -huh. and, and calming. Yep. So are there pranayamas that should be avoided that cause too much uh, energy before sitting? Or? Well, I, it, I would have to know more about your pranayama practice. Yeah. But in my opinion, and I'm sure Peter and Bodil mm -hmm. teach this way, that all pranayama that creates too much lifting energy mm -hmm. should be avoided. Pranayama should be steady, really calm and pleasurable. Keep the nervous systems really. I think you teach that way, right? Here I am saying, well, this is what Bodil and Peter teach. <laughs> so basically, just listen to everything they say. Um, I'm feeling like maybe we should put our break now. And then work through to the end of the afternoon. <coughs> work till sunset at 3.30. <laughs>